Well, good morning and happy new year. Are you guys really excited about the new year? Anyway. Uh, I won't make you say it again. It's okay. My name is James Trevelyan. I'm one of the pastors here at OBC, and uh, I have the joy of uh, bringing you the, the message this morning. And uh, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 50 this morning. Have any of you had the, the privilege or maybe the misfortune, depending on your circumstance, of witnessing real-life court proceedings? Anybody? Got a handful. It's okay. It could be good. It could be bad. I've witnessed an adoption. Like, you know, that's okay. What isn't always bad. Uh, unfortunately, I also at one point earned myself a speeding ticket when I was 17. Yes, I'm put it out there. You know, okay. You can, ooh, no, we can pass. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if you have to go to a courtroom and, and kind of witness what's going on, it's kind of like a little time capsule of the days when there were kings and queens and monarchies and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, the bailiff says, all rise for the honorable judge, and uh, everybody stands up, and, um, you know, there's, there's special language that's used. People stand out of respect when the judge walks in, procedures, formalities, this whole idea of holding court. Uh, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting. You know, you see it on TV. It's one thing. Experiencing it in person is, is a whole other thing. Now, as I said, I earned a speeding ticket when I was 17. I haven't gotten one since, so we'll just put that out there, too. Uh, After the ticket was processed, and for those of you who've been down that road, and I'm sure I won't have you raise your hands. I'm sure there are others who could join me in that. You get that piece of mail that says the state of versus and your name on it. And, uh, you know, it's kind of intimidating, especially if you're 17. You're like, oh, what do I do with this? And and there's a little bit of panic. Now, my dad had been down that road before, too. And so he said, hey, what we're going to do, you're going to write in on the thing that says you're guilty and there's an explanation. And if you go before the judge and, and make your case, usually you can get away with less of, of the penalties. They, they're willing to kind of cut you some slack, especially if it's your first time and it better be your only time. And uh, so, so we went, and uh, if you do traffic court in, in that fashion, a lot of times they'll say, show up at 9 a.m. and we'll get there when we get there. And if you're not there when we get there, you get in trouble. So we showed up at 9 a.m., and uh, the, an officer showed up with a couple stacks of ticket books, and they were going through case after case, docket after docket. And uh, things got interesting when one guy came before the judge, and we thought, well, this is, this, this is going to be very interesting. He didn't seem to take the matter seriously from the minute he approached the bench. Uh, he wasn't dressed for the occasion. He was disrespectful. He couldn't give a straight answer to the judge's questions. And he even at one point was trying to speak over the judge and try and correct him. That's not a good thing, by the way. Life pro tip, don't do that. Uh, But now I kind of wish I had popcorn in that moment because like, this is a train wreck and I'm kind of enjoying sitting here watching this. But have you ever seen an angry judge? I'm not talking like people's quarter Judge Judy, but like a genuine angry judge. Not to say that Judge Judy's anger isn't genuine at times. But judges are very no-nonsense people. I've had the privilege of meeting a couple of judges and being friends with them. And, uh, and even just outside of the courtroom, they, they tend to be very no-nonsense individuals. And making a judge angry is really not going to help you at all. It can have devastating consequences. Well, the judge, along with the entire rest of the courtroom, could tell that this guy was hiding something. So he looked at the clerk and said, would you please pull this gentleman's driving record? 
So the clerk comes in with a stack of paper and hands it to the judge, and uh, the judge starts flipping through it and, and blown stop signs, blown traffic lights, speeding, reckless driving, etc., etc. And uh, so the judge let this guy have it. He was not a fan, to say the least. And to make matters worse, he asked the officer who had cited him a question, and he asked this every time someone got up and, and, uh, and they were making their case or pleading guilty or not guilty. Uh, he asked the officer, officer, how was this individual's demeanor? In other words, how did they behave? How did they treat you when you pulled them over and were interacting with them? Well, you know, you probably guessed it. The, the officer did not have very nice things to say about this guy. So the judge threw the book at him, fines, points on his license, and there was this gem of a conversation that ensued. If you don't pay those fines before you leave this building, there will be a bench warrant for your arrest by the end of the day, and your license will be suspended. Oh, you can't pay? Not my problem. Find a friend you can borrow money from. Oh, no friends you can call? Well, that's not a surprise. Find an enemy then. Take out a loan if someone's stupid enough to loan you money. Gavel drop, next case. Yeah, that was, uh, my, my dad leaned over and whispered some things to me. He was like, don't do any of that when you get up there. Just yes, sir, no, sir, yes, your honor. You know? <laughs> well, this morning, we are going to be taking a look at a heavenly courtroom scene. And this one also involves an angry judge, unfortunately. Uh, turn in your Bibles, if you brought one, to Psalm chapter 50. The Psalms, if you're, if you're looking through your physical Bible, uh, they're usually in the center of your Bible. And uh, so if you open it up to the middle, you're either at Psalms or pretty close to it. Uh, if you find uh, Job, you need to keep going. If you find Proverbs, you need to step back a little bit. And uh, we're at Psalm number 50. We'll also have the verses on the screen so you can follow along there as well. Now, I don't know if you guys remember these. Anybody remember hymnals? Yeah, okay, a good couple. Yeah, I grew up with these. Uh, you know, hymnal is a, a songbook, and, you know, before we had screens with words on them, and, uh, you know, even if back in the days of transparencies, overheads, you'd kind of swap the little transparencies and stuff. Yeah, I heard a couple. Oh, yeah, some of you were. Uh, that, was, that was my privilege in youth group was I didn't click the, the computer. I, I ran the, the transparencies. It was a big deal. But, um, you know, hymnal, a songbook, has the words for all the worship songs and even the music, right? Uh, I mean, revolutionary concept here. Um, Psalms is actually the hymnal of the Old Testament. And just as a hymnal is arranged with intentionality, the book of Psalms is also arranged and compiled in a very deliberate way. Each psalm can be examined as a single unit, kind of like we're going to do this morning, but to understand the context, it's important to realize that each psalm fits in the greater book in a certain way. And so when we realize this, Psalm 50 kind of sticks out like a sore thumb a little bit. So for one, it's a psalm of Asaph that is not grouped with the other psalms of Asaph. So the rest of the psalms of Asaph are in Psalms 73 through 83, and the book of Psalms is divided into five separate little mini-books. Your Bible probably says book one, book two, book three. Um, and so the psalms of Asaph are found in the first part of book three in the book of Psalms. Well, this one is all by itself at Psalm 50, outside of it in, the, in book two in a different place. So that kind of has us ask the question, well, why is that the case? 
Well, it is believed that the compiler, whoever did that, uh, felt that Psalm 50 matched with Psalm 51. And if you're familiar with Psalm 51, uh, that is David's plea for forgiveness following his sin with Bathsheba. So put a pin in that conversation. We're going to come back to that in a couple of minutes. But that stands out to us. It's interesting. Psalm 50 is also unique in that, you know, typically when you look at a psalm, a psalm has a psalmist singing or saying something to God. One Psalm 50, the bulk of the psalm is God saying things to his people. And so that stands out to us too. That's very uh, unique. Uh, It's not the only one, but there's not very many of them. So, you know, God is speaking, and, and it's as if this psalm is a sort of judicial decree announcing God's intentions and his judgments. And at the beginning, we even have the bailiff kind of, in a sense, saying, all rise as the judge enters the courtroom. So let's see how this plays out. We're going to be in Psalm 50, and I'm going to start at verse 1. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Now, this portion of the psalm also has a notation at the end of verse 6. Depending on your translation, uh, it could be as it is up here where it says Salah. Uh, Some will just say the word interlude, which is kind of a translation of that word in Hebrew. And so that, that, that notation is believed to be a musical interlude or a pause, Uh, Kind of like when Josiah was playing and there's a point where he kind of was just jamming out on the guitar and there was music. Kind of like that, where there's a sense where the the singing stops and we're supposed to reflect on what was sung. So let's do that as we're reading this. I want you to imagine singing or reading this psalm as someone from the Old Testament era in the nation of Israel at the time. We see creator God, the mighty one. He's in his power and beauty, and he has summoned all of humanity. Now, if it was me, I would probably be thinking, ooh, this is going to be good. He's summoned the nations, and he's not happy with them. Uh, The language even indicates God appearing in a thunderstorm. So um, I don't know about you, if if you've ever made your mom unhappy and she kind of arrives in the thunderstorm, that's the image I get when I think of God in the thunderstorm, like the times where where I did something I shouldn't have and, you know, my mom stormed in, and rightfully so, uh, to to kind of give me what's for. But uh, so God is clearly not happy. And if it was me, I would be thinking, ooh, this is going to be good. They're going to get what's coming to them, those nations around us. But we read, and he says, he's summoned the world to witness the judgment of who? His own people. Wait, what? The heavens are proclaiming God's justice against his own faithful people. Now, that's, that would be kind of shocking, I would think. Wait a minute, but we're God's people. Why is God angry with us, showing, us, uh, showing up in the thunderstorm to judge his own people? And I think that's why that notation is there, to get us to kind of stop and, and reflect on that. So let's keep reading. I'm going to pick up at verse 7. The psalmist goes on, and and this is God now speaking to the people. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. 
I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of, of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So why is God sitting on Mount Zion in judgment against his own people with all of the nations watching? Well, he, first of all, he says it's not because of their sacrifices and offerings. You, know, you would think that if they weren't doing that, that God would say, hey, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to make those sacrifices and offerings. But he says that those are in order, that that's actually in place and happening. The religious practices were well and good. We see, however, that there's a fundamental misunderstanding of the why behind these religious rites and rituals. So these practices were intended for worship and for repentance, right? Well, God accuses his people of assuming that he needed these sacrifices, that somehow these sacrifices sustained him. In other words, the people falsely believed that God needed sacrifices to eat as food so that he could, like, survive like a human being, right? If you don't eat, eventually you're going to starve. And so they thought they were doing God a favor by making their abundant offerings. So later in verse 21, God accuses the people of assuming that he was one like yourself. In other words, to say, as if I was a human who needed to eat, you know. Um, this is why God responds to them as he does. God reminds them that he created everything. He doesn't need anything because he already owns everything. It's as if he, if he were hungry, he wouldn't tell us to go grab something from the fridge because he has his own stash of snacks. He doesn't need us to provide our snacks because he's got everything anyway. He owns the fridge and everything in it, right? Not to mention that he doesn't even get hungry in the first place, so that doesn't even apply. God reminds the people that these sacrifices were, were an act of worship, a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. He reminds the people that they need him, not the other way around. Call upon me, I will deliver you, you shall glorify me. Those aren't the words of a God that's depending on his people for anything. But that's not all that we see in the psalm. As we continue, God has an additional proclamation for the wicked. And I think it's one of the, the neat things that ties into when uh, Doug came up and read Psalm 1. Psalm 1 has a lot to say about the wicked as well. And so we see here a message from God for the wicked. And so we're going to pick up in, in verse 16 as we continue in Psalm 50. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. So God now turns his attention to those who claim to follow his covenant, but they don't indicate it through their actions. They hate discipline. 
they despise God's words. They're comfortable with things like theft and adultery and slander and deceit. He calls these individuals wicked, and he challenges their right to associate themselves with God's people. So God calls out the wicked among his people for thinking that they got away with these things. You know, his silence did not equate to his approval or his ignorance of what was happening. Despite his apparent silence regarding their transgressions, God rebukes the wicked and formally brings charges against them, just as if he was a judge in a courtroom. He also, again, corrects their assumption that he is just like a man. But this time, we see a sinister motive coming from the wicked beyond what we saw out of just the general populace. There's a major problem with this idea of a God who has needs. If God has needs, it's possible that his justice could be tainted by those who had the means to bribe him. In other words, it could be as if someone who was wealthy enough to bring a, a pleasant sacrifice could, could kind of dangle their offering before God like a dog with a treat and say, oh, are you hungry? Do you need something? Well, what can I get out of this? Like, I'll, I'll give you your offering and feed you, but, but what am I gonna get out of this deal? It's kind of ridiculous when we think about it, right? But that is what happens when we put God, make God into our own image. We assume that he is like us in that way. Now, earlier I mentioned that this psalm was not grouped with the other psalms written by Asaph. It precedes Psalm 51, and that's where we said we put a pin in. We're going to go and take that pin out right now. Psalm 51 is a psalm where David is expressing uh, repentance for his sin with Bathsheba. The reference to adulterers that we saw in verse 18 that's the reason why a lot of commentators feel that Psalm 50 should be placed where it is, because it is right in front of David's confession for his sin of adultery, among other things as well, but primarily for his sin of adultery. Now, this sends a clear message to us even centuries later. Despite being king, despite being the wealthiest person in the land, David was still subject to God's justice, and as a matter of fact, he sent Nathan the prophet to go deliver it personally to him. David could not hide his sin. Being one of God's people held him to a higher standard, and especially being the king of God's people held him to an even higher standard, and it's one that he violated spectacularly. Despite having his outward religious practices in order, David could not bribe away the sin that he had committed. So let's finish this psalm and see how God concludes his proclamation. I'm picking up at verse 22. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So God closes this psalm with a reminder that our worship, our thanksgiving, is more important than any kind of religious rites or rituals. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus, he's quoting Isaiah 29, 13, he speaks of the hypocrisy of honoring God with our lips, but not with our hearts. It's possible to check all the boxes for religious ritual and rites and for piety while neglecting to actually worship God. And if we choose to forget God, then we are reminded that there is no other deliverance. There is no help to be found outside of him because he is our help and our deliverance. 
Now, there's a lot going on in this psalm, but there's a handful of things that stand out to me as we, as we examine it. The first thing that stands out is that God has no needs. God doesn't need anything. He certainly doesn't need anything that we would be capable of providing for him, right? This seems pretty straightforward. I mean, he's God. He's self-sufficient, right? I don't know about you, but when I read the accusation uh, against the people that they assumed that he was hungry and, and needed something to eat, uh, I kind of laughed to myself. It's like, well, that's, kinda, that's just kind of silly. Why, why would people think that? But as always, uh, my pastor used to say this, and I think it's true, whenever you point a finger at someone else, there's three pointing back at you. And so as we point fingers at the people in, in this psalm, uh, we kind of have to examine ourselves. How often do we have a similar attitude? We may not think that God is hungry and needs something to eat, but how often do we fall into this trap of assuming that God has something that, that he needs that we have? When we do, it indicates a problem in our heart and in our faith. Here's an example. Have you ever given towards any kind of ministry with a mentality that God somehow needs your money? Or have you been in a position where you've asked for money and said, well, God needs your money? If it wasn't for you that that church or ministry would somehow collapse, well, God needs me and my giving. If it wasn't for me, that thing would just fall apart like a house of cards. Psalm 50 speaks directly to this. Heads of cattle, of course, are a sign of wealth in society in that era. And God reminds us that he owns them all. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If he has a need, he can take care of it himself out of his own riches. See, the thing is, God gives us the thing to give, and he also even gives us the desire to give it in the first place. And so when we do give, and when we're obedient to giving, we can't even take credit for that, because God gave us the thing to give, and he gives us the desire to give it. Or how about service? Have you ever served in ministry with the mentality that God somehow needs you and only you. And that if it wasn't for you, everything would come tumbling down. Oh, if it wasn't for me doing this, this thing would just fall apart. God reminds us again that, uh, that he can do it even if it's not like me doing it. Uh, I'm reminded of Mordecai's words to Esther in Esther chapter 4, verse 14. He says this, if you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this? So Mordecai tells Esther, you know what? God's going to deliver his people. He promised he would, so we're good there, but are you going to be obedient to what God has called you to do? And so Mordecai knew if Esther were to somehow give up or fail in her mission, he would still deliver his people. He promised it. He, made, he was going to make good on that. But perhaps it would come at great cost to her, her family, and to her people if she was not obedient and followed through. So God wants us to serve. He wants us to use our gifts. But his kingdom will carry on even if I drop the ball and fail or do something wrong. Now, these truths are humbling, but, but to me, they're also encouraging, right? Right? When it comes to our, our, our giving and our financial resources, you know, I'm glad that, that if God calls us to do something, that he has the means to, to pay the bill. If it was all on me, there's no way it could happen. If it was all on any one of us, there's no way it could happen. But, you know, if God calls us to some enormous task, like, oh, I don't know, you know renovating a historic church building in the middle of Cape Cod, you know, something just hypothetical, just put that out there. You know, if he calls us to do something like that, he has the means to pay the bill. 
He'll make good on it. Giving to support any work of the Lord is not because he needs my money, and that is a very good thing. There's no way I could bear that burden on my own. I give because I have the joy and privilege of joining God in his work and being obedient to his command to give. I have the joy of being one part of his church, stewarding his resources here on earth and being an example to others when I do. And when it comes to our service, God calls us to be a part of what he is doing in the world, and we steward our talents and our gifts for him, but the work doesn't rest on any one of us alone. Praise God for that, because there's no way that I could do it all. There's no way if, I, if people said, hey, you just run this and do the whole thing, I'd fall over. There's just no way that I could do it all on my own. You know, we, uh, we've served in many different ministry contexts, and every time God says, okay, it's time for you to, to go and to do something else, my first thought is, oh, how is this work going to continue? What's going to happen to this youth group that I've worked with? What's going to happen to this church plant that I've worked with? And, uh, you know, God always reminds me that, uh, that he knows what's going on, and he's big enough to manage his kingdom, whether I'm there or not. And interestingly, there are times when, when he's called us to go from one place to another, that that work grows even bigger than I was equipped or gifted to be able to, to build it, whether it's numerically sized or in some other way, that God knows what's going on and his kingdom is big enough to go on without me, with or without me. Sometimes those things thrive past what I was equipped to accomplish and God raises up others to do that work and together as a church, as the capital C church, we are able to work and to do those things for the Lord. His entire plan of salvation isn't just dependent on me, and it isn't just dependent on you. Another major theme in Psalm 50 is this, God holds his people to a higher standard. God revealed himself to Israel, he set them apart, and the people of Israel were supposed to show God's glory to everyone around them. And when they didn't, God summoned the nations together, not to judge the nations, but to judge his own people. So this principle was true of Israel in, in that time in the Old Testament. It's also true of us as Christians. I think this is why Peter said that judgment begins with the house of God in 1 Peter 4.17. Why? Why does God hold us to a higher standard? Well, Jesus summed this up for us well in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through verse 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." So we just spent a couple of months in the book of Titus talking about being zealous for good works, right? And one of the main reasons that we are zealous for good works is to demonstrate God working in our lives so that others will come to know him, so they'll be drawn to him. So if we are unable to, to live in a way that honors our Lord Jesus, then that's letting our salt go bad and, and putting our light under a bushel, right? Right? Our testimony becomes a hindrance to others who want to know more about Jesus instead of helping them want to come to know more about Jesus. So we are supposed to place our life, our light, up on a stand, right? We're supposed to give light to everyone and everything around us, and we do that 
by holding ourselves to a higher standard of thought and action. So finally, we see that we worship God in our obedience to him. The wicked were mistaken when they thought that God's silence equated to approval or ignorance of the things that they had done. The wicked were even keeping up with their religious practices. They said their offerings were were constantly before him. But God reminds us that it is our offerings of thanksgiving and, as he put it, ordering our way rightly that demonstrate true worship. It's easy to cast stones at the wicked who offered sacrifices and assumed that they were going to get something out of it, but how often do we still do the same thing? Tim Keller says that the the attitude that we are doing God a favor in our religious observances boils down to something called moralism, or as he put it, (laughs) the idea that with our ethical life and religious observance, we can put God in our debt so that he owes us things. That sounds ridiculous saying it, but how often do we do that? How often do we act in this way? How often do we think we're owed something for doing what is right? God, I'm doing things I'm supposed to be doing. I showed up to church on New Year's Day when other people slept in and didn't go. Um, I did my Bible reading. I did all of these things. So when do I get something out of that? You're laughing. Are you, are you like, uh, is that, is that, was that a thought you had when you came in? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> Jesus made our true motivation very plain in John 14, 15. He says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I mean, that's pretty straightforward, right? If we love Jesus, we're going to do the things he asked us to do. It's, it's the same if you're a parent and, and your child says, I love you, mommy, daddy, and then completely does the thing that you told them not to do, right? You're like, do you really? It's kind of hard to hold those two things in, right? So John reiterates this in 1 John 5, 2 through 3. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, all of this is not to say that religious practices are worthless, okay? Spiritual disciplines, attending church, Baptism, communion, which we're going to do in a couple of minutes, all those things are important. They're healthy expressions of our Christian walk. Our regular Bible reading, our prayer, those are all part of developing our relationship with God, and so it's important that we do them. And frankly, some of those things we do because God said we need to do them, right? But doing those practices doesn't somehow gain you brownie points with God. It doesn't work that way. They're certainly not the keys to your salvation either. Being in church doesn't make you a Christian as much as being in a garage makes you a car, right? So just the physical act of showing up to this place doesn't automatically make you a Christian. The fact that you take a communion doesn't mean, woo, look at me, I'm a Christian now because I did this thing. No, it's about placing our faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. That's what causes us to to be a Christian, only because God allows us to do that and provided the way through Christ for that to happen. Here's the ultimate truth. God doesn't owe us anything. It's more like we owe him everything. 1 Corinthians 6.20 reminds us that we were bought with a price. It's a price that we can't ever repay. There's no amount of religious practice that can ever counterbalance what God has done for us. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more because he already loves you with infinite love and sent his son to die on your behalf. It doesn't get any better than that. He loved you that much already. There's not anything that you can do to amplify that in in the eyes of God. 
as we enter into this new year, I want to encourage us all to take the words of this psalm to heart. My prayer for us in this year is that we would live in such a way that, that people would look at us and say, the people at Austerville Baptist Church, they're children of God because they, they do what God told them to do, because they're a light to other people. My prayer is that we would demonstrate a heart of worship and our obedience to God, and that we don't fall into that trap of moralism, assuming that somehow we can ensnare God into owing us something by the way that, that we live. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for, for a new year, and, and Lord, I thank you so much for, for everything that you've done in and through Osterville Baptist Church in, in 2022. Uh, Lord, it's such a blessing to be a part of this church family, and as we think about 2023, um, Father, I pray that we truly would live in a way that people would know we're your children, that, that as we look at this coming year, we would, would demonstrate that heart of worship by obeying you and not in, a, in the sense of trying to, to earn favor with you because uh, we want you to owe us something. Lord, there's no way that, that you could owe us something because we owe you everything. You gave us your son, and Lord, we just praise you and thank you so much for that. Father, I pray that, that you would help us to, to live as we should out of a heart of, of, of thanksgiving to you. Father, I pray that that would be our, our sacrifice of praise to you in 2023. We praise you, we thank you, and pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.